0: Go ahead and find second Corinthians chapter one with me second Corinthians chapter 1 well it's good to be back before you this uh, this morning last week we were in Tyler uh, doing a little weekend meeting and that was that was nice everyone was real friendly um, but just between you and me uh, I like preaching here uh, it's nice to come and preach before you who I uh, have come to know and love so so much for the last five years and I don't say that to them, that you're not my favorite place to preach, but I will say it to you. Um, One of the fundamentals of of education in the ancient world was the discipline of rhetoric. Um, Rhetoric is the ability to express oneself, to articulate your ideas, and to persuade others of the truth of your ideas. Now, we use the, the word rhetoric in a very demeaning way today. Um, You know, the politician who makes big promises and gets people's hopes up but never delivers on them, he's just spouting rhetoric, we we say. But but I think the ancients were on to something. The idea of, of the ancients was that an idea only has power insofar as your ability to persuade others of the truth of that idea. An idea only has power insofar as you're able to convince others of its truth. And so you could be a brilliant scientist or philosopher or whatever, and you make some great breakthrough. You have some great new idea that's going to change the world, perhaps. But if you can't speak or if you can't write, if you can't convince anyone else of your idea or explain it to anyone else, what does it matter? It's sort of a fundamental, fundamental skill one must have. And, of course, rhetoric can be abused if there's nothing of substance behind it and if it's just manipulation with words. That's a problem. But when there is substance... Rhetoric is absolutely necessary to communicate that. I'll go ahead and say, all preaching is an example of good rhetoric. So the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, all good rhetoric integrates three means of persuasion. Uh, They are pathos, logos, and ethos. He said, if you're ever going to convince anyone of anything, if you're ever going to get anyone to see the truth of your argument, if you're going to get anyone to come over to your side, you're going to employ... These three methods. And any good rhetorician employs all three equally well. So, logos on the right there. Logos is an appeal to logic. The, the, word, the Greek word logos literally means reason or word. And so your presentation must possess sound logic. It must not have a bunch of contradictions and logical fallacies all through it. Logos gets to the logical truth of your argument. If there's scientific data, you deploy that responsibly to, to lend weight to it. It makes sense logically. Ethos, on the other side, is an appeal to your credibility as a person. The word ethos, the Greek word ethos literally means character. Our word ethics comes from this word. And so to embody ethos means you embody the truth of what you are stating. This is why, by the way, it's hard to preach on marriage and child rearing when you're a 20-year-old single man, right? It just doesn't go over that great because everyone looks at you and says, what do you know about it? You could have a totally logical presentation, and yet people will kind of look at you and say, well, there's not a lot of credibility here, not a lot of experience backing it up. And then in the middle there, there's pathos. Pathos is an appeal to emotion. The Greek word pathos literally means suffering. Uh, Today, pathology comes from this root. It's a study of the causes of suffering or the causes of diseases. To embody ethos is to be able to move people emotionally to empathize and feel with your audience. When I think of Paul, I think of someone first and foremost who embodies logos. To study Romans is an exercise in outlining the logical flow of a complex and well-organized epistle. His constant quotations and expositions of Old Testament texts show a man of great learning, a man of great reasoning ability. Paul is a man of great logos. I think we could also say Paul embodies ethos, character, credibility. The man practiced what he preached. He did not say, do as I say, but not as I do. He said this in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He appeals to his own lived out example. To read the second half of the book of Acts is to see a man who is willing to lose everything for Christ. And so when he calls us us to lose everything for Christ, he is living that out. However, I think Paul is less commonly thought of as one who embodies pathos, feeling. You read Romans, and he comes across as a big brain. He's subduing his detractors with with his superior logic. Reading Acts, sometimes he comes across as kind of a superhero. He's always courageous, and he's always ready to die. And, And I look at that, and I say, that's amazing. I don't really see myself in that. In neither in book, in, in Romans nor Acts, does he seem to me to be particularly relatable. He doesn't seem like a big pathos guy. That's that is until you read the book of 2 Corinthians, which I'm going to call this morning the epistle of pathos, the epistle of feeling, the epistle of suffering. 2 Corinthians is by far his most personal and emotional letter. Uh, Corinth was a church he had spent a good bit of time in. However, when he had left Corinth certain voices started denigrating Paul's credentials, running him down to the church, and calling into question his care for this church he had invested so much in. And we find in 2 Corinthians that has absolutely broken his heart. This epistle is his attempt at sharing his heart with this church. His heart is on his sleeve in this letter in a way it's not really in any other letter that he writes. And so what I want us to do this morning is simply this. I want us to study the opening of this letter in chapter 1. I want us to see what we can learn from the pathos of Paul, perhaps more on the nose, what we can learn about God's dealings with people who are suffering, God's dealings with those who are afflicted. Paul, in this this opening of this letter, shares his heart with his readers, both his ancient readers and his modern ones. So let's begin in verse 3. After a brief introduction, Paul uh, tells his readers his prayer for Corinth's comfort in affliction. So this is verse 3. It, it's typical for Paul to begin his letters with a prayer for his readers. That's how he begins here. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, There are really two contrasting ideas in these opening verses, repeated over and over again. One idea is the idea of comfort, a word he uses ten times. The other is the idea of affliction or suffering. He uses the word affliction three times and the word suffering four times. And so he opens in verse 3 when he addresses God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he says in verse 4, I know these characteristics firsthand because I have experienced the comfort of God in my own affliction. So again, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. And this is where we pause and say, does Paul have any ethos here? Does he have any credibility? Does he know what he's talking about? To which we say, absolutely. That's the second half of Acts. Later in this letter, he'll list his, his affliction resume. Beatings, shipwrecks, ostracism, slander, worry, depression, loneliness. Now, maybe we should also say something about this word comfort that he uses over and over again. Um, one writer I read a while back uh, lamented that the word comfort in our English language has gone soft. To us, the word comfort means ease, be comfortable. It, it, comfort means freedom from all pain and anxiety. But, but it's, 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 it's not true that God's response to Paul's afflictions was just to make his life comfortable, to make his life easy. That's not how the word is used. God's comfort doesn't mean he immediately removes all the affliction. He immediately dulls all the pain. What Paul means by comfort is giving us strength and perspective to equip us to get through it and even grow through it. Paul will get more specific about how this happens in verse 8. We'll get there in a second. But comfort doesn't mean a removal of pain. Comfort means strengthening your spine through the pain. But what I'm most impressed with about this passage, is that when Paul thinks about his own affliction in verse 4, he doesn't think mainly about himself. He doesn't think only about himself. And when he thinks about how God comforted him him in his affliction, he doesn't think mainly about himself. Paul doesn't see himself as sort of the star in his own movie, and what's happening is important because it's happening to me. Paul says, when I was in affliction, I was thinking about you, verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that We may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When I was comforted in my affliction, I thought about how I could use that to comfort you and yours. And in verse verse 4, he says, I think about you, the Corinthians. And in verse 5 in my affliction, he says, I think about Christ. Verse 5 again, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul doesn't say God comforted me so I'd feel better. He says, God comforted us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Paul says, in my experiences, in the depths of suffering, in, in the deliverances I experienced, I kept thinking about you because I know you're suffering too. And I want to help give you the comfort that I've gotten from God. I want to be a vessel for the comfort that I have received. In verse 6, he says, if we are afflicted, It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. As one man said, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And in verse 7, he expresses confidence. They'll come out the other side of their own affliction comforted, and they'll be equipped to pass on the comfort to the next afflicted brother after them. And then go back to verse 5 again. Who else is Paul thinking about in his suffering? He's thinking about them, but he's also thinking about Christ. That in affliction, don't just think, you know, this is crummy and this is awful and I hate this and I want this to be over. Instead, he says, as we are afflicted, as Christ was afflicted, we begin to feel a deeper solidarity with Christ. The solidarity we feel with Christ and his suffering isn't just the end point, though. We also look forward to sharing abundantly in his comfort, too, he says in verse 5. The thought process is something like this. Christ's body suffered on the cross. I am a part of his body in the church, which means I am ready to suffer with him. I am a part of his body after all. Yet I also know that the suffering of Jesus' body wasn't the end of that story because Jesus endured and so can I. And Jesus was vindicated, his body was raised and glorified and just like his body was, so I, a part of that body, will be too. Jesus went through suffering to reach glory. And I will go through suffering to reach glory like Jesus did. Affliction and comfort are the big ideas of this book. Paul has been afflicted, and then he was comforted. And in the middle of it, he turned his thoughts toward Jesus. And he turned his thoughts toward his brethren in Corinth. How he could impart to them the comfort of Jesus and their affliction. It's really a remarkable way to open this letter, especially in light of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is this very harsh letter to this church. There's all these problems to be addressed. There's these people in this church naysaying his legitimacy and his authority, calling into question his care for the church. And he begins this letter this way. You know, brethren, since I've left you, I have suffered a lot. And in my suffering, all my thoughts have been to you and to Jesus and how I can comfort you in your affliction. Which brings us to verse 8. When Paul gets a little more personal and specific about his own own experiences. What did it look like for Paul to be afflicted? What's he talking about? And how exactly did God dispense the comfort Paul received? What did that actually look like? Verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers. So in verses eight and nine, he mentions the affliction he has experienced. Uh, he mentions here what happened in Asia. Um, he may be referring to the uh, persecution he experienced in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, the province of Asia Minor, in Acts nineteen, which is uh, what happened to him after he left the city of Corinth. He may be referring to a, a totally different event. He may be referring to the sort of the accumulation of, of afflictions that happened to him there. Um, speculation uh, beyond that is, is a waste of time. Paul, Paul simply describes his affliction in a, few, in a few different ways. In the end of verse 8, he describes sort of a, a physical hardship. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. He says, the burdens exceeded my physical strength. And so if my strength was at a level 5, the burdens we experienced were, were at a level 10. I could handle a level 5 and I got a level 10. It was more than I was ready for. It. it was more than I could handle. It reminds me of Acts 14. In Acts 14, Paul was stoned so badly at Lystra, they thought he was dead, and they drug his life, lifeless, limp body out of the city. That's being utterly burdened beyond your strength. That's being so hurt that your body can't hold out. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that, at the end of verse 8, we despaired of life itself. And so now he's describing psychological hardship. We despaired. I was hopeless. I couldn't see how there was any way out, how any good could come out of the situation. I was at my wit's end, we might say. When you're reading along in Acts, you know, it's easy to see Paul as, as a super Christian who never gets discouraged. But here he lets us in. He says, I didn't feel that way all the time. It wasn't all mountaintops for me. You know, Ever since I became a Christian for the rest of my life, I just felt great every day of my life. No. He says, I felt like giving up. Do you see the pathos here? Do you see the honesty? Do you see him letting us in on the content of his heart? He says being a disciple doesn't mean we've got it together at every moment of every day. And we never have a bad day. We never have a bout of depression. That's not what it means. Christians despair. Paul did. In verse 9 he says, We felt we had received the sentence of death. We were certain we were dead men. We were certain we were at the end of the line. One commentator described his mindset as this, persistent questioning of all human security. Persistent questioning of all human security. Paul says that took a toll. Day after day, contradicted, afflicted, persecuted, we despaired, we thought we were gone. But halfway through verse 9, Paul begins to describe the comfort he received amidst all of this despair and hardship. He says this, but that, all of that, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says in all of this, here's the first bit of comfort we got. It was in learning to trust God. The afflictions have to do with Paul's strength, with Paul's life. But God didn't comfort Paul by giving him more strength. He gave him comfort by teaching him not to rely on his strength. Basically what Paul's saying is, you know, after all of this, I was as weak as I ever was. I just learned... Being strong or weak in myself, by myself, is not what matters. What matters is not my strength, but God's strength. And so God didn't comfort Paul through making him invincible. Paul's eventually martyred, of course. He made him strong through his ultimate hope of resurrection. He comforts him through transforming his perspective. Yes, you're in a really awful situation, and yes, it is too much for you to handle. But I want you to see it's not about you handling it in the first place. Leave that to me, the all-powerful God who raises the dead. Just be my faithful servant. Just put one foot in front of the other. Keep serving me. I'll take care of the strength, and I'll take care of the death. God doesn't ask us to have superhuman strength. He doesn't ask us to conquer death. He's got all of that taken care of. He says, just trust and obey me at every turn. Put your confidence in me. Verse 10 He expresses a hope of deliverance. He says he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And so he says in our deliverance from the affliction in Asia, when we were spent, when we were hopeless, we got a glimpse of God's amazing ability to work and to save us in hopeless situations. And we take that hope we got in Asia into all our future afflictions and we want you Corinthians to know about it so that you will put your hope in God too. And then in verse 11, he says, I've received and I want to receive comfort from the prayers of my brethren. Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So in 9 and 10, all the comfort is God's doing. But in verse 11, Paul says, you know, I need your help too, though. I need your intercessory prayers. Paul's a man who really does believe in the power of prayer. It's all over his letters. He believes there's even more power and blessings of God to be unleashed if only God's people will set their minds to pray for it. I think prayer also helps drive home the lesson of verse 9, that in prayer, one man said, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. I don't have the strength, but when I pray, I appeal to the God who does. And so in all of this, Paul's goal is to pass on the comfort he has received on to Corinth, as he says in verse 4. Look at how I I was spent. I was despairing. I was certain of my death. But God delivered me, and I learned in that deliverance, it's not about me bucking up. It's not about me enacting some great self-help program, and I just tell myself, hey, stop being a wimp. It's not about that. It's about the all-powerful God with whom there is always hope. It's about learning to lean on him and not on yourself. Put your hope in him, not in yourself. Pray to him. Don't trust yourself. That, he says, is the comfort of God. So let's try to bring this home to ourselves. What of our affliction and what of our comfort? I think the first thing Paul makes clear is that affliction, suffering, persecution, these have always been and will always be a part of the Christian's walk. Jesus said this. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. John 15, 20. Paul lived that reality in his vocation. The Corinthians are living that reality in verse 6. You endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And if you and I think that we are exempt from all affliction, all we're showing is our ignorance of the New Testament. Nowhere is it promised Christians will be welcomed with open arms by the world. Nowhere is it promised that Christians will have an easy path through the world, a path any easier than, the, than any worldly person has. Christians are in no way immune from suffering and affliction and mistreatment. But what is promised is that God will not abandon us in the affliction. That doesn't mean he makes it all better immediately the second we pray about it. That doesn't mean he's going to anesthetize all the pain. God might not fluff our pillow to comfort us. He might help us strengthen our spine to comfort us. One man said, God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the trouble of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. Paul tells the Corinthians throughout his ministry he has experienced affliction. That was a part of the deal. But with the affliction comes strength, with the affliction comes comfort from God, with the affliction comes a kinship with Jesus who also suffered with the affliction comes experience we can draw on to point others to God when they suffer with the affliction comes a realization it's not up to me to single handedly conquer all my enemies conquer all the enemies of God my job is to trust his power and to look forward and hope to our resurrection as I simply follow him now day after day and so the question to you is are you afflicted are you in need of comfort One of the blessings of the church is being surrounded by faithful people who have been afflicted themselves in in myriads of ways. We're surrounded by people who know what it is to suffer, but also people who have learned what it is to lean on God through the suffering. And so this morning, we stand ready to point you toward the God of all comfort. But remember, there's coming a day when all of the comfort is complete, when none of the comfort is temporary or provisional. There's coming a day, as he describes in verse 5, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so also through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And the final and complete comfort of God's people happens when Jesus returns, happens when the dead are raised. It happens when sin and death are defeated once and for all, when we enter our eternal rest where all tears are wiped away. That, Paul says, is the only lasting comfort there is. And the question I have for you is, are you ready to receive it? Do you need the prayers of this congregation? Do you need to come and make your life right with God so that when Jesus returns, we will receive that comfort once and for all? If there's anyone that needs to respond, come forward now as we stand and sing.